The U.S. retail market is five trillion dollars a year. That's not net. That's gross. And research year after year about this says that employee theft costs the average retail business about seven percent of their gross receipts. So if you do the math, that's that's. In the billions, what is it? Three hundred and fifty billion dollars. That's a lot of zeros. Three hundred and fifty billion dollars a year just disappear out of businesses because people steal it. And you know, people have wrestled with this. And, and so, think with me here for a second. Why do people steal? Why do you steal? And you know, sometimes people steal because they they have basic needs that aren't met. Sometimes people steal because it's thrilling, it's exciting to steal. You know, I remember a few times when I was a kid where,、uh, you know, I stole stuff with other friends just for the rush of it, which is another reason why sometimes people steal peer pressure.、Uh, sometimes people steal because it's a way to meet emotional needs. You know, that's kleptomania is like that.、It's, there's an emotional、uh, void that gets filled temporarily by stealing, just like that's why we. Overexercise, we drink, we do all kinds of things to meet emotional needs. And last, a lot of times we steal just because we're selfish. We just can, and we want to, and we don't care, you know, if it's not ours. We we do it. And the weird thing about this is the approaches that we take in trying to persuade people not to steal. They just don't work very well. And this is this is how the first couple are how parents. Approach generally teaching their kids how not to steal. If you get if you keep stealing, you'll get caught and you'll get in big trouble, right? And so for a while, kids are like, "Oh no, you know, I don't want to do that," but they still end up stealing. Sometimes we say as parents, people who steal from others are low lifes. You don't want to be a low life, do you? You don't want to be one of those people, and so we're kind of. Shaming them, and we think that's going to get the job done. Sometimes we say,、uh, and this is actually is, is, a, is a wiser approach, but it's not the wisest. Is you wouldn't want someone to, to steal things from you, would you? And that's a that's a, a healthier way to approach it, because that's appealing to you know a good part of people's souls. But we've tried all these and others, and it really hasn't produced good results. And The Bible approaches, and we're not going to talk about ending theft today. You come in here and thinking, "Oh my gosh, John, we've never gone to this territory before." Well, we're not going to go there. I think most of us know, you know, stealing is wrong. But ironically, what we're going to read a text today that that approaches stealing and addressing it from this surprising angle, and it touches on an area of our lives that is so universally relevant. It'll speak to every one of us that are here today. So, if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to open it up to Ephesians chapter four, where we've been reading and studying, and it's page eight twelve or eight thirteen in those loaner paperback Bibles that are in the chair seats in front of you, in case you want to pick one up. It's just one verse, and it says this: "Let him who steals steal no longer." Oh no! He says it differently in this version. So let me read from this version. 
He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful or good with his own hands, and he, that he may have something to share with those in need. So, again, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful or good with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. And, you know, you could say Paul's kind of point here is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't be a taker, you should be a giver. But he goes into surprising territory here, and he, he, he goes into something foundational in the Bible, fundamental to the Bible from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. He touches on this area of work, and ironically, he connects it to stealing. And in one sense, he's saying, all the views of work that people have are, fall under one category, and then there's a whole other view of work that God had in his heart for us in the beginning. And he says that if we don't have, people who don't have a meaningful, a dream of meaningful work, to them work is just reduced to stealing. I don't mean you're literally stealing. I mean, it, work is not what it's meant to be for you unless you really have a vision for what work is meant to be and that you are engaging in your work and your employment in that way that God intended and he designed. So he's put, this is, this is like my takeaway point, God has put a dream of meaningful work, and I'll explain what that is, it's real simple. Meaningful work in every one of your hearts. And it's unique to each one of us. Before you were born, billions of years ago, before time began, God thought of you, the Bible says, and He had you in mind. He loved and delighted in you before you even existed. That Your idea who you were going to be and then he planted a dream and a purpose for who you are in your heart. And then he placed you here to begin to live that out. Now, I want to take you back to the beginning of the whole story. And we're just going to touch on a couple of verses in the book of Genesis. Because Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 tell in, in some ways the same story, but they sort of telescope down and get into more details with each retelling of the creation story. But at the end of chapter 1, here's what it says. It says, God saw, and this is after he's made the heavens and the earth and the oceans and all the animals and, uh, and, and human beings, and, the, and they all have their place and purpose. Genesis 1 summarizes that. And then the last verse says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array, and by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So there's that word work. In the beginning was work. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a marvelous, amazing, magnificent thing that God did. His work was meaningful. He made us in his image to work, and that our work 
would be meaningful. And that, I'm going to explain, break that down. What, what does it mean for work to be good? There's two simple aspects of it. God rested on the seventh day. Oh, let me finish that verse. He says, uh, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And it's, it's a picture of God getting his hands dirty. Not that God has hands, but it's a picture of God taking the dust of the earth and making us and creating. And, you know, it's this incredible picture of how everything that there is came into being. And people who read this, it's like, it's just breathtaking, like, wow. And it's controversial. You know, there are aspects of it that are controversial, uh, which we we won't get into that. Uh, I think, you know, that, that is a conversation to have another time. But in the beginning of chapter two, it says, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain. It says, the Lord, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And then he plant, the Lord had planted a garden. See these pictures? In the ancient world, people in the ancient world had all kinds of worldviews about uh, how the world came into being. They're called creation myths. And none of them are like the Genesis story. None of them. there's There's a little overlap, but all of them, once they describe it, not only do they describe it differently, and in many ways, an inferior way of looking at it, they all communicate this view of work as at the very best, work is a necessary evil that we just have to put up with. That we're all meant to have our own desert island, you know, where fruit just falls out of the trees into our hands, and the fish jump out of the water into our boat and cook themselves, and, you know, the pans that, that they're cooked in just pop out of the sand, and the fire starts by itself. And the golden age in Greek mythology was a time where the gods and people didn't have to work. That was their vision. Nothing could be further from the truth. God made work, and he said he saw it was good. And the the God of the Bible is this God who gardened. He got his hands in the soil. All the other cultures of the world look at creation as something that's broken and fallen and inferior and, and, and the, 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 the best life frees you from the drudgery of that world into intellectual pursuits or, you know, completely away from the physical world itself. The, the Genesis account says God made this whole thing that was good. Now, it's real simple what he said is he, God's a worker. Work started in the beginning because God is a worker. We're made in his image. We're made to work. But it says two things about his work. He said it was good, which meant it was rewarding to him, and his work benefited others. This is what meaningful work is that we're created for. You're created to work in a way that is 
fulfilling and rewarding to you, but it also benefits others. It's not good if it only does one of those. Do you see that? It's not good if it just benefits you. It's not good if it just benefits others, because then you're a slave. It's not good if it just benefits you, because then you're like the dictator. And you're using people. It's meant to be symbiotic. And so God was the first worker. He made us in his image. And here's the cool thing. In the beginning, it says God made all these raw materials, these two spheres, and you can read Genesis 1, made the heavens and the earth, and then God worked in those two spheres. He did what he told us to do, which was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. And the word subdue there, the Hebrew word, means to take a raw material and to move it towards its potential, to develop it. And so God did that, and then he said, this is so much fun, I'm going to make people who can continue this thing I'm doing, and they could have as much fun as I am, and have this delight in what I'm doing. And so he put us on the earth, and what work is, is where you take the raw materials that God created, you rearrange them so that they reach their potential. Now, and that potential keeps moving, that, that we find in everything there's more potential and more potential and more potential. You see the commercial on, uh, no, Kathy and I were watching a, a, a National Geogra- Geographic show the other day, and uh, where I grew up down in Texas, Church's Fried Chicken's, uh, you know, chicken place like KFC, and the guys, the two men who were partners that started that, at a certain point, they made a lot of money, and they cashed out, and they kind of went their separate ways, and, and the National Geographic program was about one of the guys who bought all this land in central Texas that was just kind of in sad shape. It was, kind of, it, it was almost like the land was like a stray dog, you know, that was running around and, and just eating garbage, and it, it just didn't look like the rest of the community around it or the rest of the land around it. So this guy said, I think this land has potential. Now, he didn't, like, pave it and develop it. Not that that would have been a bad thing. But what he saw was, in this property, it needed water. And so he started having, he had a lot of money, he started having wells drilled. And he drilled 70 wells in these hundreds of acres. No water. And this isn't a part of Texas where, and he, and he pulled up, uh, uh, held a piece of rock up in the show, and showed this porous rock. And he said, this is all over this part of Texas, and water runs through it. But there's no water here. But it rains enough that there should be water there. And so he wrestled with this and researched it. And so what he did is he, he, he started trying to figure out how, how can this land reach its potential? There's something missing here. And so we started doing some research and looking at how to problem solve, how people address this in other parts of the world. And he saw on this hill where all this, uh, underneath this one part of the property, there was all this uh, stone formations that should have water in it. And so he realized the, the water is running off the land. So he up, there was this, all these cedar trees. He pulled all these cedar trees up and planted grass, this grass, this tall grass, had these long roots. And he held a, held a piece up and it was like, this is where the ground was, and he's holding it, and there's roots about that long, 
and the, the heads of the grass got that tall. And he said, and, and, he, and he showed this. Within about a year of doing that, natural springs started popping up all over the property. Just water started running out of the ground, started forming ponds and lakes and creeks. And as soon as that happened, all of a sudden, all this wildlife started moving onto the property. And this, this became like a refuge. But no one had caused that. This was undeveloped property. He looked at it, and he did what God calls us to do. He did it with land. There's another guy uh, I, heard a, I read a story about who he was working in Romania. And in Romania, they have a lot of fruit and fruit trees there. But this guy who worked there was really disturbed at how they, a lot of fruit was wasted. All these trees produce all this fruit. And he thought, this, this is terrible. Their economy is really struggling. What could we do with all that fruit? He and his partner started a small preserve company to collect that fruit and use it instead of wasting it. And it's become this world-renowned business that has just fueled the economy of this part of Romania. This is what work does. Work takes the raw materials that God's put and rearranges them and draws out their potential. That's what we do when we stay home and raise kids. That's what we do when we farm. That's what we do when we teach in school. We rearrange ideas and words together and teach them and we infuse in kids' lives understanding about how to live, how life works. Everything you do when you're a manager of people, you take the raw materials of people and their energy and their know-how and you try to rearrange them and draw out of them their potential to realize projects and processes, right? Everything we do is work in that sense. It's taking the raw materials and doing what God did in Genesis. And so we partner with him. The thing is, each one of you have been given a dream by God for a purpose for your life. And it has a, a, a sort of range of expression, but a lot of times we don't even know what that is, or we, we've had it robbed from us, or we're just searching like a blind person trying to, I hope I come across it like the proverbial blind squirrel that finds the nut. You know, we go from job to job to job. God wants to help you, not to be like that thief, not that you're stealing, that's a kind of life that, that is a, a twisted expression of this rich, fulfilling life that all of us are meant to have because we're image bearers of God. And he's put a dream in our hearts. I'll tell you a person who had a dream like that. You guys, uh, it, you can, I'm going I'm to grab a few verses out of the story. There's a story of a young man who had a dream named Joseph. And Joseph was uh, the next to the youngest of 12 boys, okay? So he got his butt kicked a lot. And uh, can I say that in church? Okay. He probably got picked on a lot by his brothers, and when you read his stories, you, you see that that was true. Well, one day, his father sends him out to check on his brothers, and uh, just before that, Joseph had told his brothers, hey, you guys, I've had a dream. And in my dream... He said, uh, I was, uh, I was, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright. 
and your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And they all go, what? Who do you think you are? You know, they, were, they, they understood metaphorical things. They're saying, we're going to serve you? <laughs> You're going to be our boss? Not likely. You know, not in our culture, not at any time, in any way. Then he has another dream. And he told it to his brothers. He said, listen, I had another dream. At this point, you're thinking, this guy is not the wisest person in the world, right? And later on in the story, it's amazing that he became a person who was renowned for his wisdom. Because this, 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 got, this was the straw that broke the camel's back, the story he's telling. He says, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon, 11 stars, were bowing down to me. And all his brothers go, right. And his father and mother go, you think we're going to be bowing down to you too? And they were all mad at him. Now this is, you know, this is like a person who lacks character. But he has something. This dream came from God. Well, his, right after that, his father sends him out you know, in, to check out the flocks. And while he's on his way, he's lost. Right? It's the weirdest thing. The, the beginning of this story and the end, which I won't give you all the details, but it's, it's interesting how much God changed this young guy over the course. But he's out in the fields looking for his brothers, and he's just lost. You know? And he's wandering around, and he's going, I'm looking for my brothers, and he stumbles across some other person. And he says, oh yeah, you know, they were here, now they're over there. And so he finds them. But as he's walking towards their camp, they go, look, here comes the dreamer. <laughs> right? Here comes the dreamer. And then they, it's like, maybe they had a couple of, you know, wine skins of wine at this point, but they were not happy campers. And they said, you know, let's teach him a lesson. Uh, I, and this is pretty wild, how, how crude this was. They go, I think, I think we just need to kill him. Let's just kill him. Let's teach him a lesson. And one of his brothers go, no, 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 don't, don't do that. You know, let's just throw him in the cistern here for a while and teach him a lesson that way. And they go okay, let's do that. You know, so they, they take him and they throw him in the cistern and they strip his, this robe that his dad had had made for him, this multicolored robe, and they put animal blood on it and they take it back to dad and they say, you know, he got killed by an animal and his dad's all brokenhearted. But his brother was going to rescue him, you know, and send him home. Uh, when everyone, probably when everybody sobered up. And before his brother can do that, the other brothers sell Joseph into slavery into Egypt. And so he gets, the, the story picks up a few chapters later. He's in the, uh, uh, the home, he's a slave in the home of one of the officials of Pharaoh's court named Potiphar. And so Potiphar brings the slave in, and of course, you know, you come into the house, they go find out, find something for him to do. He's bought Joseph. But Joseph is so good at whatever they give him to do, he just moves up the pecking order, order in the household, and eventually Potiphar goes, I'm putting you in charge of the whole house. And it says, because the Lord was with him. Remember what work is? It's where we partner with God in living out the dream he's given us, and wherever we do that, if we do it, well, we will bring a blessing on where we're working. We will see God at work there, and it benefits those people, and it benefits us. This is what work is supposed to do. It's supposed to be 
meaningful, which means it benefits us and it benefits others. Everybody, everybody wins it when, when meaningful work is engaged in. So Joseph is living out this dream, but he's still a servant, right? The dream isn't fulfilled. No one's bowing down to him. He's a servant. And anyway, as the story goes, it has an unhappy ending in Potiphar's house. He gets thrown into jail. So Pharaoh has a jail, and there's a a man in charge of it. And when Joseph's thrown into the jail, Joseph is a model prisoner, and he starts succeeding in his jail. And pretty soon, he's so good at, at taking care of people in the jail and running things that the head of the prison puts him in charge of the whole prison. And it says again, the Lord was with him. There's that partnership thing again. God wants to partner with us. That's what work is. He doesn't just send us out there. He could do it by himself, but he wants you to have the joy out of work that he gets out of creating and making. And so he's put that in you. And so it was in Joseph. Well, the story turns out real well. Joseph ends up interpreting one of Pharaoh's dreams. It's a crucial time in the history of Egypt. And he ends up being in charge of everything in Egypt. He is a public civil servant, a civil magistrate, but he's the second most high-ranking person in all of Egypt. There's Pharaoh, and then there's Joseph, and everybody else follows Joseph, and eventually his family comes to Egypt looking for food because there's a famine, and they do bow down to him. But at this point in Joseph's life, what he's learned is, he's learned what he didn't know in the beginning. This, and this is what takes time for us to grasp is. Work is about us being servants. It's not about us being the boss. We may be the person who has the final say on things, but what Joseph, what makes you the kind of boss that honors God and, is, and produces meaningful work is you understand that's, that you're supposed to be the greatest servant of the food chain. You're not the least of servants in the food chain, you're supposed to be the greatest servant. Jesus said, the Son of Man, Him, He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And Joseph went from someone who said, my dream is everybody's going to do what I want, to the point where he did what everybody wanted, everybody else wanted, until he was safe to have the responsibility that God eventually gave him. And so that's what happens in work is, God has this, I want to expand your sense of responsibility. And there's always this test in our lives where if we're faithful, with what? Just a little, God says, I'll give you more. And if you're faithful with that, I'll give you more. If you're faithful with that, I'll give you more. Faithful to what? Faithful to serve in a way that constitutes meaningful work. And meaningful work is where you're rewarded and it benefits others. The difference is stealing. And all the other ways that people work, there's this vision of work that that we get here in this picture. And so, how do we get, some of you, if you're you're tracking with me, at this point you should be asking, okay, I'm not sure I'm in a job where I'm getting rewarded and other people are being benefited. I think it's possible, but 
the way things work, it, there's not as much benefit for anybody. It's a very frustrating situation. But the truth is, everywhere where Joseph went, it wasn't working well. But Joseph embraced his God-given role to live that dream out and, and, and to play that role wherever God put him. And then wherever God put him, things went better. And people, everyone benefited from it. Now, he wasn't treated well in almost every situation up until the very end, right? Where he became in charge of all of Egypt. But do you see, if you're frustrated in your life, you're never going to get to the place that God wants you to get until you learn to serve. Until you learn to do the dirty work that nobody appreciates. But God, who is willing to do dirty work, is partnering with you. And there will be fulfillment in it if you do it with that mindset. And there will be rewards for you and benefit to other people if you approach it that way. But if you're like Joseph in the beginning, it was just all about him. I want work that rewards me. Didn't sound like he cared at all about whether it had benefit to his brothers. And so God had to take him through a process where he had to learn that's what it's about. Until it really was in his heart. And it, he was safe to get more authority and responsibility because he'd be faithful with it. Any of this feel familiar? Any of this ring true in your own life, in your own experience? Do you think God wants you to have a dead end life? When over and over Jesus said, God will give you a little because he wants you to be faithful, a little because he wants to give you more. He wants to give you more. He wants to give you more. I don't mean this is not prosperity teaching. This is meaningful teaching. This is God gives you more so you can be a greater benefit to other people. That's how the book of Genesis started. I've said this a few times recently. Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing and even the, all the nations of the world are going, to be a bless, are going to be blessed through you and your seed. And by the end of the book, Genesis 50, Joseph was saving the whole nation of Egypt, one of those nations. And the rest of the story is how God kept sending his message out into the nations. But the Jewish people kept holding on to it. And they didn't want to, you know, Jonah, the book of Jonah is about Jonah having to learn to care about Nineveh, which was a wicked nation. And so we're constantly having to relearn the same lessons. We want it to be about us. And God says, you're important, but you're not the center of everything. You've got to get out of that place. You will never be happy if you try to make the whole world revolve around you. No matter how skillfully you work at doing that, you will never be fulfilled. See, and so how do we get from where we are, maybe in that place like Joseph where we're looking for everyone to bow down to us? Maybe you're not exactly there, but you have your moments where it would be nice if everyone bowed down to you, you know, once, once a week at work, right? In the, in the you know, in, in your... Uh, Board meetings, everyone, I'm going to stand up and I want everybody to bow down to me. Those little moments, you know, that we dream about. And it really, that's, that's something that God wants for you, but he will turn it around where you see it 
in its proper light because a lot of times God shows us something and it's exactly how it's going to work out, but it's going to go through these evolutions of understanding where we start getting what's going on. So how do we get there from where we are? Two things. We have to have a Joseph in the cistern moment over and over and over. What Joseph's pride and selfishness and self-centeredness brought about was his brothers resented him. They, they were going to kill him, and instead of killing him, they threw him in an empty well. Imagine. That's what a cistern is. It's like a well where they, rain, they, they, they channel rainwater in it to conserve it in an arid country. They drop him into that thing. You can't get out of it. You're in a hole. You ever feel like in your job you're in a hole? You're at the bottom of an empty cistern? People have thrown you in there? That's happening because God's trying to break something and transform something inside you. And Joseph had, at that point, to let go of this dream of, of, of achieving this dream on his own and say, God, this dream is from you. I want to do what you want. I'm going to live under your lordship. I'm not going to choose to live on my own terms. I'm going to follow you as best I can. And so he gets put in Potiphar's household as a slave and he just works faithfully there. So he went from immature dreamer to faithful worker and the only way you can explain that was that cistern moment where he saw something about himself in that cistern there all by himself nobody else to blame anymore he could look up and say it's all their fault but you know he had to have a moment of as they say in AA moral clarity where he saw I am the architect of my own misery and something broke inside him, and, he, and his heart opened up to God's purpose for his life. And it didn't become perfect immediately, but he went for years and years and years going through this process of being forgotten. But holding on to the dream that God put in his heart. But a, a lot of people have a dream in their heart, and some people don't have a dream in their heart. Because it's been robbed, or they've ignored it, or they have misunderstood it. Or other people told them that dream's, you know, for fools. That dream will never be realized until you go through that cistern moment. And that's where you surrender. And you say, I surrender. God, I'm getting on board with your purpose for work. And I'm rejecting this, it's all about me. Or that work is, is a necessary evil. I believe you have a purpose for me somewhere in some kind of vocation because that's what vocation means latin vocare means a calling this is what a dream is it's a calling to something and paul said back in that passage work with your hands and what he's saying is all work that can be meaningful that fulfills the two characteristics that god showed us in genesis 1 it benefits others and it benefits you. So, to get to the dream, I'm going to, pr- I'm going to pr- ask you to pray with me. I'll tell you this quick story and <clears throat> then we'll finish. A guy one day, it's a true story, was uh, 
he's, he's, he does, uh, he travels and, and preaches and teaches on hearing from God. And he was dropped off at his, uh, his host's home late one night uh, before a conference was going to start. And he was walking out of that host's home in the neighborhood. And this was in Hawaii. But it was in a part of Honolulu that was kind of the, the condo that he was staying at was on the edge of sort of a seedy district in Honolulu. And he was hungry. He just got off the plane. You know, he's tired. He's kind of, you know, the time, that, that difference between Hawaii and the, and the coast because he lives in L.A., and so he, he went outside looking for uh, some food, and he saw a sub shop. And so he's walking over to it, and a young Hawaiian guy walks up to him and taps him on the shoulder and says, Hey, bro, uh, you need anything? And he goes, No, I'm just looking for a sub shop. I'm, I'm hitting at that one over there. He goes, Hey, dude, you, know, you, want a little, you want some smoke? And he goes, No, no, no. You know, that would just make me hungrier. Uh, that's why I'm going to a sub shop. You know? And he goes, Hey, bro, you, know, you want a girl? And he, look, and he points over, and there's just three teenagers. There's two girls and a boy. He says, You want a girl? And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, you know, you want a girl? You need company tonight? And he goes, no, but could I talk to him? And, and the guy goes, well, sure. So they walk over there, and he, and he sees these three kids, and they're just teenagers. And two of them are about 18, and, one, and this one girl, Kayla, is 15. And so he looks at her, and he says, immediately, God just speaks to him. And he says, he says to Kayla, he says, what's your name? And she says, I'm Kayla. And he goes, hi, you know, I'm Sean. And they talk for a second, and he goes, Kayla, what's your dream in life? And she goes, oh, I don't have a dream, you know. <laughs> I'm 15 years old. I'm a street prostitute, right? Do you think I have a dream? He goes, you know that God has a dream for your life, and he wants to show you what that dream is? She goes, really? She goes, I don't believe in God. I don't think God exists. You know, could you live that kind of life and believe that God exists when you're 15? And he goes, well, how about this? I'm going to ask God to speak to you and show you what his dream is for your life. And she goes, I don't believe God. I don't believe in God. And he goes, why don't you just, you know, just, just let my faith carry you there. She goes, okay. He goes, now, he's going to speak. Now, he's not going to, you're going to hear a voice, but you're going to hear it inside you. And so all, they're all standing there, and, and <laughs> all of them kind of bow their heads. And he just prays a short prayer. Father, you gave, you know, you made Kayla and you have a purpose for her life, would you show her right now what your dream is? And she goes, whoa. And her friends turn and look at her and go, what? And she goes, I think I know what it is. And, she, and so Sean says, well, what is it? She goes, I think he wants me to cook. And so Sean says, do you cook? And she goes, well, no, not really, but I like to. And he goes, Okay, well, let's pray next. Let's pray now for God to show you something practical you could do this week towards that goal. She goes, do you think God will show me that? She goes, he goes, sure. He says, let's pray again. She prayed, and she goes, okay. And, and, and they all look in, what, what did he say? And she goes, I just remember my uncle owns a diner. And I'm, I think God wants me to call him and ask him for a job. And so... Uh, he talks to them a little further, and, he, and Sean gives um, them his email address. And so she writes him, uh, and, and about a year later, she's not a streetwalker anymore. She's working for her uncle, and she is so gifted in, in, in you know, cooking and food prep and, and everything around food. His business, which is mostly serving older you know, kind of clientele, 
she has all these ideas and all these young people are starting to come to the diner and the diner is doing so well, he's opening another diner and he's going to make her in charge of it and he's worked out a plan to make her the owner of it in a couple of years. And by then, she's been back in high school, she's finished high school, she's become a Christian, you know, she's obviously not working on the streets anymore, working the streets, she's walking on them, but not in that way. And her life has totally changed because God's put a dream in everybody's heart. And he's put a dream in your heart, a unique dream. You know, I want, you, I want to just pray with you uh, before we, we leave today. And uh, Adam, where are you? Yes, Adam's still here. This might, you know, put you in that awkward zone to pray, because a lot of times when you ask God for specific things, there's a lot of fear that he's going to speak to everybody else, but he won't speak to me, right? Because one of the things you should regularly do is ask God, God, what do you think of me? God will speak to you, and he will tell you what he thinks of you, and he's not going to tell you you stink. I've, I've never prayed with anybody who experienced that. God might say you need to work on this, work on this, but he will always say these things that fathers say to their children. That, that reaffirm their value and worth and their love for them. But God has put a dream in your heart, every one of you that are here. So I want to do with you what that guy did with Kayla. And then we're going to close. I'm going to pray, pray those same two things. But I'm going to ask you as we do this, let me push this out of the way. You know, if, if this is something you feel like, gosh, this resonates with me, and it doesn't mean you have a terrible dead-end job, it just means you're at a place in your life where you feel like, I think there's, God's doing something in my vocation, my career, you know, my work. Uh, and you, you want to find uh, and follow more closely what God has for you in that area of your life. If you, if you have that, I just want you to come up front. We're just going to pray together, and everyone